activity here. I'm going to give you three words, and I want you to make up a sentence with these three words. Okay? Here's your three words. Bacon, donut, and fitness. Bacon, donut, and fitness. All right? See what you got. I'll give you a few seconds. Come up with a, with a sentence. Bacon, donut, and fitness. All right? And I want you to all tell me your sentence at the same time. No, I'm just kidding. It's fine. Uh, I, I, here's mine. Um, when I'm through fitting this donut in my mouth, I'm going to eat another piece of bacon. There you go. All, all three words right there. You got it. Yeah. That's it. You get it. One day in class, the teacher asked little Johnny, he said, I want you to make a sentence with three words. And these were the three words. Detail, defeat, and defense. Detail, defeat, and defense. So little Johnny thought for a moment, and he said, all right, I got one, teacher. And this was his sentence. Oh, I forgot my donut. He said this, when a horse jumps over defense, defeat go first and then detail. Well, Johnny, you got it, you know? No confusion there. You know, for many of us, though, little Johnny sounds like a prophet, right? Because defeat seems to come first far too often in our lives. We experience defeat and loss way more than we want to. So what do we do? What do we do when defeat comes our way? Now, I'm not just talking about your team losing the game. I'm talking about that pain, that hurt, that frustration, that stress, that anxiety that is so deep and so powerful that it just throws your whole world out of whack. That kind of defeat. What do you do with that kind of defeat? What do you do when defeat feels like it is overwhelming you? Well, King David, being the leader of an entire nation, he understood the reality of victory and the reality of defeat. He had had a lot of both in his life. And so how did he handle defeat? What did David do with defeat? Let's see if we can find out. Psalm 13, verse 4, David says this, And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. Isn't this just like the worst moment in life? The other team wins, you know, and they immediately throw up an L on their forehead. They start yelling loser across the field at you. Or your favorite candidate comes up short and you have to, Listen to the other side brag and gloat all over the Twittersphere. Or maybe you and your date are, are arguing over the correct exit to take in Memphis for Elvis Presley's Graceland, and, and you end up being wrong, and you just feel like singing, don't be cruel. You know, it's just in your mind, in your heart. You know. David isn't just feeling defeated. He's feeling the reality that his enemy is about to gloat over him. They're about to scream and yell over him. Now, somebody might say, hey, David, suck it up, buddy. Come on, man. Learn from your failure. You know, Get back to the Super Bowl next year and win it. But see, there's something else going on here with the enemy. 
years ago, Billy Crystal used to do an impersonation of Edward G. Robinson in the movie The Ten Commandments. His impersonation would go like this, if you know who Edward G. Robinson is. He would say, where's your Messiah now, see? Yeah, where's your Moses now? Challenging the people about God. See, what's about to happen with David and his enemies, they're not just going to call him a loser. They're going to say, hey, where's your God, David? Where's your God at? I thought he was supposed to be holy, holy, holy. I thought he was supposed to be the great I am. David, didn't you say that your God was God and there was no other? David, sounds like you got scammed, buddy. Sounds like you bought into some kind of a cult. You you bought into some kind of mythical religion. Because see, here's the reality, David. You lost and I won. So where's your God now? We all experience loss and defeat in life. We all do. The other team team may win at the buzzer. The other company may win the, the bid for the project. The other candidate might win the election. The snowstorm might hit and take the power out for a week. The tornado might devastate your hometown. The sickness might come back. See, defeat and loss... We all understand it. And wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we always got to talk about God when everything was good, when everything was fine, when we were always winning, when we were always victorious? But that's not reality. The reality is is that we have to talk about God when things are, are bad, when things are difficult, when things are tough, too. Someone once said, it's, it's not the testing of our faith that comes when things are good. When we can say, oh, These are the ways that God is working in my life. I see it. I'm so excited. This is good. Let's sing another praise song. That's not when the testing of our faith happens. The testing of our faith happens when God seems far away, when God seems distant, when we feel like God is not working in our lives, when he's not doing anything in our lives. That's when our faith is tested. Our faith is tested when people say to us, where's your God? Where's he at? If your God is real, then why is the world in chaos? If your God is is real, then why are so many people struggling? If your God is real, then why did that candidate win? Why did that pipeline get shut down? If your God is real, why did that snowstorm come through? Why did people die from that? Why did that tornado come through? Why did the sickness come back? So is there an answer? Is there an answer to that question? Where where is your God? About 900 years before Jesus was born, the psalmist wrote an answer. Psalm 115. This is what the psalmist wrote. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Why would a non-Christian ask, where's your God? Why would they ask that? Why would they say, where where is your God? Well, the psalmist goes on to tell us in Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. 
They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. All people, Christian and non-Christian alike, we are inclined to only believe in what we can see. That's our, our inclination. For the Christian, though, thankfully, we have saving faith in Jesus to help us fight the good fight, to keep believing confidently in what we can't see. February 2021. How are we doing at fighting that fight? How are we doing as, as Christians believing in what we can't see, believing in the promises of God? How are we doing at believing in the promises of God? Or are we spending way too much time believing everything we see on TV news and everything we see in our social media feed? Or are we ignoring TV news and ignoring social media and we're just kind of believing in whatever our personal opinions are about whatever's happening in the world? Are we making idols out of our fear? Are we making idols out of our anger? Are we making idols out of our apathy? Now, for non-Christians, they don't have a choice. They don't. They don't have a choice. They can't help but only believe in their family and their friends and their jobs and their retirement account or their savings account or their checking account or their houses or their cars or their hobbies or their scientific theories or their political theories or or anything else in life. They can't help but only believe in what they can see and touch and feel and listen to and watch and debate and argue and bedazzle and whatever else they can do. They can only believe in what they touch or what they feel. They have no other option. So it's not confusing. It should not be confusing that someone who is not a Christian would say, hey, where is your God? Because they don't know where He is. They don't know where to look. See, God is not an idol. God is not a political party. God is not a scientific theory. God is not a source of entertainment. So therefore, they struggle with knowing where God is. They are looking in the wrong place. And dear Christian, might I say sometimes, so are we. We are expecting God to be in these things that we think He should be in instead of letting God be who He is. So, where is God? Where is He? Psalmist tells us, Psalm 115, verse 3, that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Unlike me, unlike you, unlike every king, every queen, every president, Every general, every coach, every pastor, every other person in the universe, God is good, wise, and right, and just, and perfect all day, every day. It never stops. 
That's why he's the only one who can do whatever he pleases. See, that, that's not true for us, okay? I mean, if I decide to do whatever I please with my taxes, I mean, I might get away with it for five years, I don't know, ten years maybe, but eventually it's going to catch up with me. And for that matter, we might say, well, hey, I can get away with anything I want to in life. I can eat whatever I want, drink whatever I want to drink, go wherever I want to go, do whatever I want to do. I'm fine, you know? I'm, I'm fine. I, I can do whatever I want to. But ultimately, it'll catch up with you. It may not catch up with you in the hospital. It may not catch up with you at work or at school or with your family. But Jesus said it'll catch up with you when you stand before God. But here's the thing. Nothing catches up with God. Nothing catches up with Him. Because God is in the heavens. God is perfectly sovereign. He is perfectly good. He can't be anything else. He's always sovereign. He's always good. God is good and His love endures forever. God is wise and His judgments endure forever. God is powerful and His actions endure forever. God is sovereign and His plans endure forever. The sovereignty and the goodness of God are all He can be. It is who He is. It is part of His very character and His nature. He's always sovereign. He's always good. So where is our God? He's in the heavens being perfectly sovereign, being perfectly good, because He's always sovereign, and He's always good. Now, someone might ask, well, if God's sovereign and good, then why is the world in chaos? The world is in chaos because of sin. The world is in chaos because of rebellion against God. That's, that's why the the world is in chaos. The world is in chaos because of rebellion against God, and that didn't start in Germany in 1921. And that didn't start at UC Berkeley in 1964. And that didn't start in the presidential election in 2020. No, rebellion against God started with the first man and the first woman in the garden. That's where sin and rebellion against God began amongst humanity. The world is in chaos because of my sin. The world is in chaos because of Dow's sin. The world is in chaos because of your sin. And your spouse's sin. And your kid's sin. And your parents' sin. Your politician's sin coaches sin your teachers sin the world's in chaos because of the sin of of lawyers and doctors and stay-at-home moms and line chefs and uber drivers and and everybody else in the world the world is in chaos because of sin the world's in chaos because of toddlers and teenagers and senior citizens the world is in chaos because of sin and rebellion against god but here's catch the world doesn't want to agree with that. We don't want to agree with that. The world's not willing to look into the mirror and say, yeah, I might be part of the problem. It could be me. Maybe something I'm doing is, is really causing some trouble. 
world's in chaos because of sin, but, but we're not willing to say that. When I was in seminary, I remember our seminary president one time said, hey, when you're preaching, if you're going to say something offensive, just go ahead and tell everybody. <laughs> so this is one of those moments, you know, I might offend some of you with what I'm about to say, but just hang in there with me because there's a truth behind it. See, we're not willing to look in the mirror. We're not willing to deal with our sin. And so what we do is we are quick to blame Biden. And we're quick to blame Trump. And we're quick to blame Cruz. And we're quick to blame Pelosi. We're quick to blame the stock market. We're quick to blame the video games. We're quick to blame the clerk at the Circle K that rings our donut up wrong. See, we are quick to fuss and argue and complain toward everyone but our own hearts and our own minds. We're not willing to look into the mirror. We're just not. All of us. Start with your pastor. We're just not willing to say, hey, it could be me. I could be part of the problem. That doesn't mean other people's sin doesn't matter. It matters a lot. But it does mean that it seems that as professing Christians, we feel like Jesus lied to us. We feel like Jesus lied. So, so what do we think Jesus lied about? This is what we think Jesus lied about. Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Listen, the specks matter, okay? They matter. The specks matter a lot. We can't turn a blind eye to sin in the world. We, we can't act like these things are not going on. We should run for office. We should vote. We should be involved, okay? We're, we're not being foolish and ignorant here. But Jesus is saying if we aren't wise and careful, we will spend the entire day fussing and posting and arguing and complaining about everyone else's sin, all the other people's specs, and we'll never look at the logs in our own home in our own family, in our own attitude, in our own mind. So therefore, our actions seem to say, Jesus must have lied, because that other person's sin is worse than mine. The specs matter. But as believers, we've been called first and most to pay attention to the logs. About 600 years before Jesus was born, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. And listen to this, this one little sentence that God gave to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, verse 8. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? So in this scene, in this moment, in the country, things were chaotic. The nation was full of sin and rebellion and chaos. But the priest, the pastors, the ministers, the clergy the congregation, the church members, they weren't turning to the Lord. They weren't saying, hey, where's God? Can, can God help us in this? Someone once said that God is not worshipped when things are good. But boy, we're going to blame him when things are bad. We're going to say he's falling down on the job when things aren't going the way we want him to go, but we won't worship him when things are good. When things are good, hey, we're going to go to the beach. We're going to go to the lake. We're going to go to the mountains. We're going to hang out. We're, 
you know, we're just going to do whatever when things are good. We're not going to worry. We're not going to pray. We're not going to be desperate because things are good. We're fine. But when things are bad, our first response is, well, why, God? God, there were 73 tornadoes that didn't hit my town last year. Why'd you let the one? That's what we do. We, we ignore and worship God when things are good, but boy, we'll blame him when things are bad. So where's God? God's in the heavens, being perfectly sovereign and perfectly good because he can't be anything else. He, he is always sovereign. He is always good. And here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is known as Emmanuel, God with us. So in some stunning supernatural way that cannot be explained in human terms, God is not just in the heavens being sovereign and good, but God is right here. He is right now with us being sovereign and good. Jesus was talking to some religious leaders one day, and this is what he said to him, John chapter 8, verse 18. The Father who sent me testifies about me. So Jesus says, the Father, is, he's, he's given commercials about me for a few hundred years now. And the religious leader said, hey, where's your Father? In other words, hey, where's your God? And this is how Jesus responded to them. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So if someone says to us, hey, where's your God? We can easily and joyfully say, hey, consider the truth about Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you know him, then you will know God. God is in the heavens being sovereign and good. And through Jesus, God is here in our midst, among us, in our hearts, in our minds, being sovereign and good. Or put another way, the, the message of the church has never changed church may not always give the message, but the message God gave the church has never changed. And that message is simply this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus and be made right with God. Now what's the benefit of that? What's the benefit of being right with God? Well, that brings us all the way back to our first question about David. How did David deal with defeat? David dealt with defeat by turning to God. By turning to God and turning to God and turning to God over and over again. David had a relationship, a personal relationship with the one true living God and he kept turning to that God over and over again. And there were times when he turned to that God, he would lament Lament means he would take all of his pain and all of his anger and all of his fear and all of his frustration and he would say, here, God, please do something with this mess. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Brogop says there's four key characteristics of lamenting. And they go like this. Turn, complain, ask, and trust. That means is this. It means that we take our pain and our frustration and our fear and our discouragement and we turn first and most, we turn to God. And we complain first and most on social media, on comments, to the newspaper. Right? First and most, that's where we complain, right? 
No. First and most, as believers, we complain to God. We take our complaints to God. And first and most, we ask God to do something about our complaints. And then maybe, most importantly, we, first and most, trust God. We we trust Him. We trust God to be who He is. We trust that God is the same God who through ages past has helped men and women and boys and girls. We trust Him because He's proven Himself over and over and over again. That's what David's doing. David, he can feel the breath of the enemy on his neck. He can see his enemy raising his fist in victory to to shout over, to gloat over him. He can hear the voice of the enemy beginning to call him a loser. And in that moment, David turns to God. In that moment, he says, there's nowhere else for me to run. God, I need you. Lord, I need you. He feels alone. He feels defeated. But he knows it's not true. He knows feeling alone and and feeling defeated, that's just a lie that he got in his social media feed. He knows that at the very least, his defeat is temporary. It's not ultimate, because he's more than a conqueror. And he will be for 10,000 years and to infinity. He does feel alone, though. But he knows it's not true. Caitlin Miller works at the support center for Chick-fil-A in Atlanta, Georgia. A few years ago, she wrote this about what it means to have saving faith in Jesus. You may have had a friend desert you, but you are not deserted. You may have had a spouse abandon you, but you are not abandoned. You may have failed, but you are not a failure. You may have never known your father, but you are not fatherless. Life may be crushing, but you are not crushed. No matter who you are, if you are in Christ, no matter what happens, all of those things that Caitlin wrote, they're all true. But sometimes we don't feel them, do we? Well, the way we feel them, there's only one thing we can really do. There's only one way we can feel that all those things are true. And Caitlin gives it to us. This is what she says next. The only way to take back our true God-given identity with unshakable confidence is to do this. Is to look to the one who gives us our identity in the first place. If you're a believer, your identity is in Christ. Ultimately. It's not what you think about you. It's not what your parents think about you. It's not what your spouse thinks about you. It's not what your friends think about you. It's not what your pastor or your politicians or or your coaches or anybody else on the planet thinks about you. If you are in Christ, your identity is in Christ. David, in the middle of his defeat, he's turning back to the one who gave him his identity. He's not ignoring this truth. He's looking to the one who made him. He's turning to God. And how much did he need to turn to God? How overwhelmed with defeat was David? Look what he says next in verse 4. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. 
David was a man's man. But he was shaken. And so please, don't let anyone tell you that your fear, your anger, your frustration, your despair, your discouragement, your sense of defeat, your depression, don't let anyone tell you it's not real. Don't let anyone tell you it's not real. But likewise, don't let anyone, especially yourself, persuade you to worship those things in your life. To make those things bigger than God in your life. To make those things primary in your life. David knew his enemies, they were about to rejoice over him. And they knew it was going to shake him down to his very soul. But he knew he could turn to God. See, part of trusting God is turning to God when things are dark. Part of trusting God is not trusting Him when things are good. It's part of it. But a bigger part of it is trusting God when things are not good. When things are not going the way we want them to go. When things are not normal, we don't stop trusting God. We don't stop. We trust Him even when things are dark, when we don't understand what's going on, and we don't know how everything's going to work out. Now, look, that's not blind faith. That's not blind trust. It's, it's looking at things with the eyes of faith. What does that mean? And what does it look like in real life? Well, I've told you before about my friend Elton Jones. Elton lost the, the bottom part of, of both of his legs in an accident on his chicken farm. And in 30, 30 years, three decades of ministry now, I've never had a moment like the moment when I showed up at the farm that day. Multiple ambulances, helicopter, it's just mass chaos. And I, I got over to the place and, and saw what had happened to Elton's body. And Elton looked up at me with a smile on his face, Hey, Dal, go grab my Bible out of the glove compartment in the truck. Come read to me. Just as calm and cool and casual as anything. I mean, just, just come read God's Word to me. That's what I want. Just, just let me hear God's Word. Elton and his wife, Gail, they had become two of our closest friends. I was pastoring a very small country church in eastern North Carolina, and, and they had just become dear friends of ours. Elton was in the Pitt County Hospital in, in Greenville, North Carolina, for 40 days and most of those 40 days, it was touch and go. There was some scary danger through the whole process. I don't know how many times I went down there during the 40 days, but, but it was a lot. I don't think I went every day, but I probably went close. It was a 50-minute drive, 50, like almost an hour, one way to the hospital from my house that was next door to the church. Elton eventually got out of the hospital. He got two prosthetic legs, and he spent the rest of his life serving God all over the world, taking the gospel to people in ways he had never done before his accident. In other words, just like David, Elton, when he was defeated, when he lost his legs, he turned to God, and he kept walking. He kept. A few months later, my 
My wife elbowed me in the middle of the night. My pregnant wife elbowed me in the middle of the night and said, hey, time to go. So went back to the same hospital, <laughs> 50 minutes away. The difference this time was, it was the middle of the night. It was dark. And also, to my benefit that night, there was a huge, gigantic, thick fog. I mean, crazy fog. I couldn't see five yards in front of me. But here's the thing. For 40 days, and, and more than that, I had driven the path to that hospital so many times. I mean, I could have driven it with my eyes closed. And I was half asleep that night, so I kind of did drive it with my eyes closed that night. But I, I knew the way because I had already been the way. You know what David did when he felt defeated? You know what he did when his enemies were screaming over him, when they were gloating over him, when they were making everything feel dark? This is what David did. He kept walking. He kept driving. Because his identity was in the one who sits in the heavens. The one who does whatever he pleases. The one who is always sovereign and good. David kept walking. He kept driving. Because God knows the way. He knows the way. But, but there's a little catch David didn't have the story about Jesus. It was another 900 years before Jesus was even born. So David didn't have the, the story of Jesus. He didn't have the story of Christmas. He didn't have the story of Easter. He didn't have the story of the cross. He didn't have the story of the empty tomb. He didn't have the story of the, the resurrection, the ascension, the, the promised return. David didn't have all those things, but we do. So, when things are dark, when things are frustrating, when you feel defeated, when your enemy is screaming over you, when your enemy is blowing up your social media feed, dear Christian, you can keep believing in the one who made the blind to see and the lame to walk. Jesus does not know Jesus does not know the way. Friend, Jesus is the way. And that'll never change. 10,000 years from now, Jesus will still be 